Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost here with the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. Uh, another awesome episode coming up for you guys. Today we have on Dave Dahl, who is uh, one of the founders of Dave's Killer Bread, a long history in baking with the family and uh, and some other amazing experiences. I think some really powerful experiences and challenging experiences that uh, that the rest of us can learn from. So thrilled to have Dave on and chat with him today. So uh, Dave, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hey, glad to be here. Yes. So uh, I think the the whole Dave's Killer Bread has a very interesting start to it and the branding is very fascinating. And some folks may know that there's an element of uh, you know incarceration that kind of drove some of that branding and the idea behind it and some of your hiring practices. Can you just give us a little precursor to what all of that was? Well, uh, you know, doing all that time was, it was more than just uh, a good story to tell. It was, it actually, all the things that I went through added up to who I was. And, uh, I wouldn't have been that guy without going through those experiences, but you know, it all started out with, with, uh, you know, low self-esteem, depression, uh, anxiety, just, I was, uh, wasn't very happy as a kid. And eventually that led to me, um, discovering methamphetamine, which was, I consider my first transformation in life, which and then that led well, to a bunch of other things. Yeah. Well, like you said, I, I a hundred percent agree that all of those things are part of our story and it's, it's easy to, uh, to gloss over the really tough stuff that people don't often want to get into the messy, complex things, the stuff that maybe doesn't look, make us look awesome in just to get to the kind of fairy tale ending pieces. Uh, but without those things leading up there, it doesn't really create the full story. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm proud. I've learned to be not proud of what I did before, but proud of how I overcame it, you know? And, uh, and because of that, I've, been able to make a difference in the world, you know? For sure. And we'll definitely talk about some of those things. I'm curious though, you know, sometimes it's easy to look back in hindsight and say that we're like proud of those things and that we can see how they fit into like a bigger picture or our journey. How do you help people who don't have the hindsight, so don't have the success later on? How do you help people that are just in the middle of the messy, crappy stuff see that there is a way through it? Well, there's one thing you can't, one thing I have experienced and learned is, you know, you don't run away from it, you know. Uh, I ran away for the first many times that I was in a situation that was untenable because I was able to run away. Uh, you know, when I, my fourth incarceration, I was forced to face Dave Dahl on a real level over time and with a lot of struggle. Um, I eventually asked for help. And that's a big thing. I mean, in prison to do that, and, you know, it's kind of a big thing out here too. Um, if you can learn to, if you can discover the humility, and actually it takes courage as well to ask somebody, to ask 
the you know people to help you through it. Because um, you know if, if you got it yourself, you know you can do it. That's great, but you know help is good. I've I've asked for help many times, and it's been valuable. Yeah, I, well, I love two things that you said. I love the asking for help. I also like the piece about just facing up to it. You know, I think a lot of people in really tough spots where they've made some mistakes or they're, you know, a, a bit ashamed of some of the stuff that they've done or they've just created bigger problems because of some of the stuff they've done, they yeah. either try to outrun it or run away from it. And the problem with that is you're always going to face something else coming up. I mean, you're going to make another mistake. You're going to do something wrong in the future. And if you're always trying to outrun it or run away from it, uh, you're going to get exhausted. I mean, your life is just going to be a constant trying to outrun problems versus like you said, just taking ownership of them, facing up to them, asking for the help. And that way, the next time a problem comes, you can solve it. You can work through it versus just constantly exhausting yourself by trying to outrun problems. That's the story of my life, man. The first 38 years I ran. And uh, once I stopped running, I, I became a happy man. So, so how did you make that shift? What was the trigger that, you know, at some point you said, look, I can't keep running. I've got to face up to these things. Well, what caused that? I probably would have kept running, Kyle, if I could have. Um, because it's all about, it's one of the things that, that I like to let people know. For instance, if you have a drug addict son or you know, people going, whatever people are going through, um, if they're enabled to continue doing that, it's kind of comfortable, even though it's not what they want to do, it's comfortable and they keep falling back into it. Um, if you are, if you are not enabled to continue that lifestyle, something's got to give. And in my case, it did. And what I, you know, I was suicidal in prison over the last few years, or the first few years of my fourth incarceration. I, I was like, my life's over. What am I doing? What is the point? And I didn't quite get to the point of, of killing myself. Um, instead, I got to the point where I asked for help. I, I waved the white flag. It's like a 12 step, it's a 12, it's the first step in the 12 steps, if you know about those. Uh, you, you just admit that you're powerless and you ask for help. So in prison, that's a big deal. You know, it's like a, something you don't do. At least that's the, the conventional way of thinking in prison, if there's a conventional yeah. way of thinking. <laughs> but what I did is I, I wrote a kite to psych services and Within a few weeks, I was I had medication that was helping me, and then I got an opportunity to go into a computer-aided drafting vocational tech tech program, right about the same time, and that taught me a lot about myself. But I the, the two the combination of those two things were the beginning of my change. So you, I mean, so at some level, you had to be willing to challenge the status quo, you because you say in prison, you know, that wasn't the, the way to do things. It wasn't, you know, necessarily accepted or the norm or typical. So there must be a part of you that is willing and open to challenge uh, authority, to challenge the situation, to challenge those things. Yeah. I don't know uh, how long, you know, I've always been sort of a rebel or, you know, in some one way or another, but this is different. This was kind of the other side. It was like, Rebelling against rebellion. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I had to. I had to man up, you know. And that's the way I see it. it. It was the beginning of me being being a full human being. 
So I'm curious. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've came into a, a lot of success uh, within the last, you know, five to 10 years. Um, before that, was your family successful? Did you grow up with success? What did your upbringing look like? Not at all. We, in fact, there was sort of a philosophy in my family that, you know, that you couldn't go that far. You just worked your ass off and that's what you get. Um, we had religious, I had religious upbringing, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, and I went to Seventh-day Adventist schools. So there was, I definitely had a different sort of an upbringing and I wasn't happy. But I worked, in, I worked in my family's bakery. My family, my dad had a bakery. And it was successful enough to stay open for many years because he worked his ass off. He was, he was not someone who created systems and you know was all constantly improving processes. He was a guy who just kept beating his head against the wall and making it work somehow. And uh, my brother came along. Um, he was way older than me, and he started making a change in that regard. He started adding, started creating systems that were helpful. And so when I got out of prison, finally, now what he did while I was in prison is he had found uh, a way to keep the bakery, you know, making making a decent amount of business through uh, private label Trader Joe's private private label products. Uh, so there was no real branding going on, and it was it was just a product. It was a product that they would create to fit the fit the bill for the for uh, Trader Joe's. And um, when I got out, there was a, it was like a whole new branding opportunity for us, which we thought I thought it was just a way for me to get my equity in the company to be to become to to make my mark and just continue doing what my dad and my brother had done, but. I came from a different place, which really, really worked out well. And it, it was not easy. None of it was easy. It was really hard. But you could see the opportunity fairly quickly. Yeah. Well, so for the listeners, Private Label is uh, that they were manufacturing a product, but it was being labeled by whatever uh, vendor or retail operation they were selling it within. Yeah, um, we would label it in the factory as Trader Joe's this or Trader Joe's that. Yep. And so when you talk about that there was a new branding opportunity, what was how did that surface? I mean, Dave's Killer Bread is the thing that people are going to recognize. How did the branding opportunity come out? It was very natural. What happened was uh, we, we had never had that uh, sort of branding in our company, no story, we weren't telling a story or anything. It was very low key. And when I got out, I, uh, I, I brought with me a spirit of innovation, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I was about when I learned in computer aided drafting was, you know, the mindset that you have in drafting and designing things and creating blueprints and stuff, uh, this sort of stuff added up, you know, all learning that I spent a couple of years doing that in prison. Uh, that mindset I took with me and I was able to learn how to replicate other products that were out there and go, Hey, how can I make this better? And essentially that's what I did. And, um, 
but the branding side of it kind of came naturally as well, naturally because Dave, you know, my brother wanted to call my bread Dave's bread. And my idea was always to continue with, you know, in the family business, just a new chapter in the family, uh, you know, saga. And, but my brother kind of wanted to make it a separate thing. And uh, so he's wanting to call it Dave's bread. And even, I have four varieties of bread that I took to the farmer's market in 2005. Um, the first one was Blue's bread and the second was Killer bread. So eventually what happened is fairly quickly, people just started calling all my bread Killer bread. And so it naturally became Dave's Killer bread. And mm. here we are at the farmer's market and people are loving all this stuff, right? And so we started realizing that we had a we had a hit, and now we had to figure out how to get it into the stores, because really that's where you got to get it, not on the farmers market. So, but we were lucky to have that opportunity to go into the farmers market that year, uh, and so because of that, uh, you know, we were talking to a an attorney for um, IP attorney basically, who said you guys need to. Uh, come up with some sort of logo for this. It's got to be a distinctive logo. And that to me was a challenge. I was, that was a serious challenge. I was like, how do you, what's a logo? What do you, how do you think to make a logo? So while he was telling us about this, I'm drawing this thing up because my brother had wanted a picture of me and my guitar on the back of the bread, uh, you know, to go with the story that we're, I was going to tell. Uh-huh. Uh, but I took that idea and I just put it into a logo where this guy is, is drawn on the wall or painted on the wall on this brick wall, maybe on you know, an alley or something. And there's these great big letters, Dave's bread next to it. And this guitar is going up through the V and uh, somebody comes along and spray paints and tags killer over the top. So that was where the idea came from. And I realized because I'd never made a logo before, that was way too much information for a logo. <laughs> so it had it was a real challenge to get it to some sort of logo-like thing instead of an illustration. And sure. it was a constant, it was always learning, learning, learning. But I I took, I did write my story on the back of the bag. It's not there anymore. But the story that I wrote was very personal and very, came from the heart and people just love the story as much as they did the bread. And so it was a, it was a perfect branding opportunity from that point on. People wanted me to speak here, speak there, go here, go there. Uh, I became a celebrity and, you know, just showing up places was, was getting the bread, getting the story out there. And so it, yeah. it was just local that it became Washington, Oregon, Idaho, then California. Um, it was going crazy. When we got into Costco, it was, it was, uh, that was what made us millionaires. Before Costco, who knows? Because it was so much work and so much financing just to stay alive. Yeah. Well, so there are three kind of big highlights to this story that I've heard from other guests as well. One is the story element. 
there's so much behind having your story, being able to tell that story and communicate that story. And that story is big for scaling, for growing. Everybody wants to go directly to the numbers, um, which can be important for financing. But in terms of product to consumer, the story is huge. Yeah, And so that's one piece that I hear time and time again. And so, and that's what you're talking about is that story was a big part of this whole endeavor and the branding and resonating with people, connecting with customers. Yeah. And in our so case, that's one piece. In our case, the story was not only true, but I was passionate about it. And the, right. I, don't, I don't know that you want to make up, say you could make up a story and that might work. But uh, in our case, it was just natural. Yeah, well, I think that's a key part, right? Is it has to, I don't think you, I mean, you probably could make up a story, but being passionate about it and having it actually connect and resonate with people takes some authenticity to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, you certainly wouldn't want to pretend that something's true that isn't, but you might make up right. a story that's funny and, and just gets people's attention. There's other ways you can do it if you don't have that story. I mean, so there's, there's just ways of grabbing people. Right. I think that the second piece that you mentioned and talked about that has surfaced with other guests as well is just the ability to take your own personal experience and adapt it to a new environment. So whether it's coming out of prison, I've talked to a lot of people that are coming out of the military and have to figure out how they take skills and things that they learned and acquired in a different environment and now modify and adapt them to be successful in a new environment. And that seems to be a theme with all the people that I talk to are, that are successful is that ability to take some skill and figure out how to transfer it to a new environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, those skills, in my case, it was a very, I could see it as a big picture skill. It's, it's like begin with the end in mind. What do I want? What am I trying to accomplish? Uh, and then you have to, you have to figure out what's been done and you have to be able to do that first. At least that's the way I, I approach it. Yeah. Well, and then I think the third piece that I heard that is really important, especially from a business standpoint, is you guys didn't go to Costco right away. I mean, you may have had Costco in mind, but you didn't start at Costco. You started at the farmer's market. You started testing things. And through that testing is how you continue to define the brand, how you continue to refine your story, how you came up with these other building blocks that eventually enabled you get to get into Costco. But so many people are like, well, I've got to get into Costco this year versus taking what opportunities are right in front and using those as a testing ground to really refine and build the actual brand or product. Yeah. In my case, it was patience and love and hard work. Uh, you know, I loved what I was doing. So it didn't really matter if I, you know, I didn't have to be in Costco right away. I didn't have to make that much money right away. I had, it was an organic opportunity. It was, it was like, this is the next move. This is the next move. Um, and it was all, we all, we did it all kind of illogical or you know, story fashion where it was just like, this is the next right move. So uh, Costco wanted us, actually wanted us years before we actually got in there, like a couple, three years. But there was no way for us to meet that demand. No way. And so we had to slowly work our way up to being able to produce that, for one thing. And our marketing, all of our stuff had to catch up. So, yeah, it was it, anybody, when people have a really simple product that they know how to 
make a lot of, then then maybe they could do Costco. But Costco's got to say, well, we need your product. We need, we want your product. Our customers clamor for your product. It's it, you can't force Costco to take your product. So yeah, and then, well, it paid off big for you guys. Yeah, and they want to make a lot of changes too. It's not they don't change your product, but they they want to change how you do things. So oh yeah, absolutely. Well, so for the, for the listeners who are on, you eventually sold the brand Dave's Killer Bread uh, to Flowers for what two hundred and seventy five million. Yeah, somebody made two seventy five. I'm not crying. I got a job. <laughs> well, I think it's a good point. I mean, obviously, 275 million at a sale price doesn't equal 275 million in your pocket. No, not even close. And um, you know, people see that number, and that's all they see. They go, "Man, this guy is filthy rich," and you know, should be a billionaire by now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, we one thing about selling it, I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to sell it. Uh, at that point, if we if we hadn't got to the point where it was too big for me, you know, I just didn't I didn't feel like I was wanting to go further further with it, you know, because there's more people getting involved. At first, it's your baby, the thing you love and you're proud of, and whatever and you're, you're you're selling it, and it's easy to sell. But then it gets to a point where other people are are getting involved and somehow you're losing some of that, some of that original mojo. And I guess it was just time for me to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to recognize for everybody where your real passion lies in terms of size and scale of a business. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, because some people are that, you know, C-level executive and they want to run a big organization. That's where they strive and that's where they thrive. And other people are, the startup growth, you know, kind of person, the innovator who's going to get it to that stage. Uh, but not a lot of people can do both. Right. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, I made the move I made and, you know, moved, moved on. Well, so what are you doing now? I mean, you sold, sold Dave's Killer Bread. What are you doing now? Well, this is a weird thing. I, I didn't really plan on doing another business. He was going to do some investing and who knows what. Uh, but in 2015, 2013, I, you were probably going to get to this anyway. I had an incident out in Washington County here in Portland, uh, with the cops out there. And it was interesting because I have this terrible record in the past, but I wasn't in criminal mode at all. Uh, my problem was that I had gotten into drinking and, um, I drank a lot. I went through treatment. I went through some other, uh, I went, a lot of stuff happened. It's, it's a whole book in itself, but, uh, I got to, I quit drinking for a few weeks and I discovered bipolar mania. Um, something I'd never experienced before that I can remember, but I, first it was really a lot of fun. And then it became, it went over some edge where, where I really lost it. So that happened out in Washington County where there was three cop cars that got smashed, not completely smashed, but hit by my car. And I don't even really remember the incident, 
But there was a lot of stress that led up to that. A lot of it had to do with the changing of the guard in the company. Um, so it's a long story, but that really made everything come crashing down. I was this guy who everybody looked up to as, as someone who turned his life around and was this guy going around speaking and doing all these things. Um, so when that crashed down on me, it was, you know, as, as always, I take full credit for my mistakes. Um, but that happened and it started me kind of at the bottom again, except I had a whole bunch of money. <laughs> yeah. You know? uh, uh -huh. So I wasn't really at the bottom, but see, to me, the money was never the thing. Um, and so what I lost was everything that mattered to me. Uh, my, the, the great growth and the great, uh, way that I felt about myself and about everything was crashed. And so I had to rebuild that. Uh, it took me quite a while. And, you know, in a couple of years, a couple of years or a year and a half after that incident, um, I discovered African art. I had a shoulder surgery, laid me up and I discovered pain pills. So, uh, the pain pills were another thing I had to deal with, the addiction that I had to deal with. And, but that, but that got me started on African art of all things, African tribal art. And I developed a real, uh, I, I got real knowledgeable about African art and, and just studied it intensely. But what really was screwy is I, I ended up buying millions of dollars of it, worth of it. And, then all of a sudden I had to do something with my business. I had to create a business around it. So that's what I have now. Uh, we're in liquidation mode because I have so much stuff. But that's, uh, I developed a, a business called Discover African Art. We have several employees uh, and we're, we're just, uh, we have a huge warehouse and a couple other small warehouses. So, so you, when you started though, you didn't have a plan of starting this business, you just found a passion and love for African art. Correct. Which is the wrong way to do things. Um, at least it was for me. I, I thought that it got kind of out of control and my expenses got too high for, for the amount of sales, you know? And uh -huh. so eventually I had to just say, Hey, I'm a liquidate. And, um, you know, pay my bills that way. So it was kind of a, it kind of a good shot in my, it was a good blow to the stern, I guess, you know, that I had to heal. But it, it, well, nothing that was going to sink me. But it was, a, it was a choice that instead of making my money work for me, I was, I was uh, blowing it a little bit. Sure. So how did you deal with the recovery? I mean, to your point, you had established an identity as being, uh, you know, recovered as, uh, you know, reformed or whatever term you want to use. I don't know if there's a right term for that, but there's some identity around the fact that you overcome those things. Yeah. And then to your point, you have this huge blow that, that challenges some of that. How did you work through that? Well, I had to come, I had to remember the, the important aspects of my transformation in my original you know there's the dope transformation which made me gave me all this false courage it, was, it, it first it was the first thing that taught me that i could change was the dope 
Then the second, the second change was after four trips to prison. And what I discovered was humility, acceptance, and the resulting um, courage that you get from that. So for a while, I didn't have any courage not to speak of. I was like, how am I going to get my courage back? Um, how am I going to be okay again? And part of it was acceptance. Such a huge thing. I was like, hey, yeah, this is what happened. Now, why did it happen? And how does it become part of the story instead of the end of the story? And that is what I've been working on for the last couple of years. And it's, uh, I kind of, I, I, I went into hermit mode with the African art. You know, I just, it was me and my employees and that's it. But that was, I also see the African art as my healing, part of my healing uh, process. It helped me get out of my head and out of, you know, all these things that I was dealing with and eventually helped me heal. And I think become, obviously I had to become a better person than I was because that person got me in trouble again and, you know, screwed everything up. So I obviously, what it taught me is that I don't know shit and I already know that, but sometimes you got to be reminded that you don't know what you, you don't, you're not all that, you know what I mean? And it's time to come back and get those, those principles together again. Yeah. Well, amen to that, man. Amen to not, I mean, I think obviously your story has these uh, really dynamic elements, but it's not undifferent to other people's life stories. Maybe they're not, you know, crashing into cop cars or they're not, uh, you know, buying a bunch of African art or they're not, you know, coming out of incarceration, but there are elements in people's own lives where they have to come to terms with these same things. They have to rebuild their courage. They have to recognize that they don't know and they don't have all the answers. They have to reach out for help and support. And so I hope that, you know, for people that are listening, they don't just dismiss the elements of the story because they're bigger and more dynamic than some of, you know, maybe their personal elements and start to recognize that the steps that you had to take are still the same steps that they're going to have to take, no matter how big or small the experiences they're going through. Yeah, I like to, you know, the same same things that I went through before that helped me overcome my past when I was 38 years old. That was like the turning point. Uh, when that started happening, you know, those things that I learned right then, they're still valuable. The problem was, uh, you know, you, you you just play tricks on your mind. I mean, you, it happens. And... That's what I did, and I had to say, okay, I played a trick on myself. Um, I'm, I'm going to accept that and move on and try to do better next time because I, I don't think I have another three-cop car crash in me. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, a lot of your story is uh, is actually really personal to me. I have uh, one of my good friends um, – you know, went through some, some addiction challenges and was in and out of incarceration and, and, but was also a phenomenal entrepreneur. Uh, and he ended up, you know, getting di diagnosed as bipolar and took some medic medication and things for it. Um, but just could never quite pull out of the rut. And so a couple of years ago, they found him, you know, dead in a parking lot from an overdose. And so hearing these things, uh, there's so many experiences that are coming to mind, shared experiences with my friend Chad, uh, who went through all of that. 
And to your point, you know, being able to find and reach out for the right support, not the support that feels right. So there's an enabling support in all of these experiences that maybe for the individual feels good and right because people are saying and doing what you want them to say and do, but it's not the right support that you need. And so being able to tell the difference between those two things, so the support that makes you feel good because it's giving you what you want versus the support that you actually need uh, that may be uncomfortable and difficult to face and accept. Yeah, I've learned that, you know, you have to get uncomfortable to learn. At least for me, you're not gonna. You don't learn that much when you. I mean, you're not learning a whole lot if it's that easy. Um, Absolutely not. You may be learning. Well, and, and yeah, but. Well, so I think the other thing too is you. You talk to people who haven't had these experiences or haven't been challenged or put in uncomfortable positions and they just see life differently. And so I think there's an element of really being willing to put yourself out there uh, to be able to put yourself into uncomfortable situations for your own growth and betterment. And just so you can see the world more clearly. I agree. Yep. It had to happen to me. I've, I've learned my lessons the hard way. That's for sure. But I've learned some good lessons. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as the saying goes, there's not enough time for you to commit all the all the mistakes yourself. So you're going to have to learn from a few other people's. So hopefully uh, people listening can learn from some of your experiences and mistakes and uh, not feel like they have to commit them all themselves. And that's my that's my reason for doing this. You know, it's, I think once you have experienced uh, a great turnaround and you, you've got great lessons, I, I know some people have no heart for other people, but for me, it's it's my world. I want to make it a better place, you know, and I have the ability to do that. So um, it's a no-brainer to me to try to help people not go through the same thing or to inspire them to do things that are world-changing. Absolutely, and I love that. I think that that's, uh, that's huge. It's critical that people like you share their voice, their experience, so that the world can overcome those things without everyone having to experience it themselves. Yep. I agree. So what, what do you hope for over the next five to 10 years for you? What do you hope to see? Well, there's so much already in the works. They, uh, I have people working on, I shouldn't say I have them working on it. But there are folks working on all different sorts of, like a documentary is in the works, uh, a feature film, maybe a comedy half-hour comedy show based on my life. Uh, my life is pretty funny at, at times. So stupid, <laughs> stupid funny. <laughs> so uh, I think any of those things and all of those things sound like fun, but they're not something that I'm necessarily working on at this point, but they could happen in the next few years. Um, I want to basically move on from the African art. I, I think that the African art may... May, I may develop a sustainable, smaller business model out of it by the time I'm done with the liquidation. And that's kind of a goal. Uh, it's, it's fun to do stuff when you start figuring stuff out. You know, you want to, you don't want to just quit. You want to, yeah. ideas come to you like, wow, I got to try this, you know? Um, and so there's that. And, you know, I do real estate. I, you know, I, I'm so busy with all the different little things that I do. 
Uh, not to mention the fact that I go speak to kids. I love to speak to kid, young, you know, not real little kids, but 12 up. Um, I love talking to them and hoping that I can maybe, maybe help save them some drama in their life. Uh, uh-huh. and, I, and it really is good for me. I enjoy talking to them. It's kind of like talking to you. You know, it's, it's, um, it's how I remember and keep in mind the, my humility and things like that. So, I mean, I'm sort of a celebrity here in town. So pretty much anything I do gets noticed. And I have a band that uh, I play in and it's called the Killer Granddaddies. And we're, you know, I, that's one thing I want to do is develop as a musician to be the kind of musician, the level of musician that I, that I imagine myself to be. So uh, there's just a lot of things going on. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of opportunities there. I'm excited to see what comes out of it. Yeah, I'm not as ambitious as I was uh, with Dave's Killer Bread. Not willing to work as hard as I used to. But uh, it's because I'm a little older and I feel like I have to balance a little bit. I didn't have any balance with Dave's Killer Bread. People would be like, dude, you need balance. I'm like, fuck you. I I don't. <laughs> I, I mean, thank you for your, you know, thank you for your, uh, uh, for your concern. But no, I don't need balance because it's going to take every lick of energy that I have to make this work. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the idea of balance. I was talking to a client recently, um, and a lot of coaches when they're working with an executive or working with an individual they go to this thing of you've got to have the right goal. You've got to have like one central focus to direct your attention toward. And I think there's an element that that can can be true. But I also think that the piece that gets overlooked is some people are driven by an objective, some big goal they want to accomplish. And some people are driven by the process of life, by what process they're actually going through. And if all we ever do is focus on the big goal, then we neglect the people that the process is actually what excites them and that they find energy in. Uh, and I think that there's an element of helping people see and kind of develop personal processes that they find satisfaction in versus just big goals. Exactly. I, I, the process, if I didn't love the process, and I think that's such a big point, you learn to enjoy the journey. If you're not enjoying the journey, you probably won't enjoy it when you get where you want to be either. You gotta, right. I, I enjoy it every day. I, I go, well, this, I didn't like that. I, that was not cool. But you know what? I'm, I'm good. So my journey's good. And I'm learning from stuff all the time, you know, little things, just to try to be just a little better person all the time. And the process, the process is the journey there. That is, if you can learn to do that, um, live in the moment and, you know, work on trying to become a better person, but, you know, be accepting of where you are right now too, and be the best you can be right now. Um, all of that is, is good stuff. So as a, as a kind of closing thought, how do you get somebody to do that? How do you get somebody or how for the individual listening, how do they better appreciate the journey they're on? Well, they got to get it. I think they have to get inspired. Um, you know, if you're on a journey that's not, that you just 
can't possibly enjoy because it's not right. It's just like, this sucks. Well, either you can learn to love it. You can learn. I think you can learn to love just about anything. Uh, and, and say, Hey, this is where I'm at right now, but I am going to, I am going to have my acceptance for the moment and know that I can make a better life for myself, but it's going to take effort. It's going to take sacrifice. Um, it sacrifices is the biggest thing because most people have families. They have they have vices. They have you know vices and families are two different things. Vices tend to be a, a, not a good thing. Family is a good thing generally, right? But it also has sure. it has a lot of baggage, and the more baggage you have, the harder it is to reach your goals. So uh, for me, what was what made me so made me powerful in a way was I got out of prison with sort of a clean slate uh, and a good, clear, open, hardworking mind, you know, and that is hard to get when you have, when you've been in the world and you have all this baggage. So you have to keep that in mind. That is a, that is an aspect that you have to overcome. Uh, you have to make the most of it. But a lot of that say, if you have, a, if you have vices like addictions, gambling addiction, sex addiction, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, that's going to get in the way. So deal with your problems. Face your problems. If you can't start by facing your problems and being exactly who you are, and here I am, it sounds like I'm preaching, but I'm not. I'm just saying, if if you can learn, if I can learn to um, be exactly who I am, face myself exactly as I am, and say, hey, this isn't going to work. That's not going to work. I can be a better person by eliminating that. And if you can't do that, then you're going to, then you're, you get what you get, you know? Yeah. I think that that, I think that's a great sum up of things. I think it brings us right back to kind of where we started, which is to really recognize and take ownership of your story, um, of your personal story and be able to fit those things that are baggage into the broader perspective of life that says, hey, there are some things about this that are really crappy, but I can also apply these things in different environments because I know my story and I and I know that it's not fully written yet. So I'm going to write the next chapter yep. and just move forward with some courage. Exactly. I'll tell you what, that that is what happened with me when I was in my teens. I was pathetic. I At least I saw myself as pathetic. And like, I didn't have a future. I had my, I could go be a baker with my dad and my brother with, which seemed like a dead end, 100% dead end at the time. Like there's nothing here for me. Um, or I could go throw myself out in the world, you know, knowing very little about anything. And so I, I kind of, I was a musician too. I was a guitar player and I could write music, but I couldn't write lyrics. I didn't have nothing to write about. So I started saying to myself, mm. I'm going to go out and create a story. But, yeah. and boy, did I, you know? And I look back, I look back, over, remember one time I was speaking to, on the Oregon Senate floor, I was doing a, um, I, was, I did their invocation. I was invited to do an invocation for one of their sessions. And I got up there and I was like, my God, look where I've been, look where I'm at. Well, I imagined this, I created this by, you know, 
I created, I created this by envisioning this. And then I didn't exactly envision that moment, but I envisioned being in such a situation and I didn't know what it would take to get me there when I started. And I, and I fell and I fell and I fell and I fell, but eventually I, I developed the courage that got me to where I went. I love it. I love the story. I love your your experiences. I, I love how you're continuing to plow through with courage, how you're resetting when you need to, taking ownership of what happens. Um, I think those are all awesome life lessons. I think it's an awesome example for folks that are either currently experiencing some of their own challenges, maybe self-imposed, uh, but may be experiencing some coming up to keep these things in mind, be able to take the courage to take ownership of it, figure out how to move forward, have something that inspires them. It's awesome. Yeah. You know, I just wish all the best. I, I really hope for all the best to you and your listeners, because um, honestly, if I can make a difference in any of your lives, it, it's already, it makes a difference in mine just to do this, you know? So um, hopefully there's, it has an effect, a good effect on someone and helps them be more successful and happy. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Really appreciate having you on. Yeah, I really enjoy talking to you. Have a good one, Kyle. Thanks, folks. This has been uh, an episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction with Dave Dahl from Dave's Killer Bread, hearing his story and example. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode coming up.